The following message is brought to you by Champions Church. For more information, please visit champschurch.com. Just, just as was alluded to earlier, I, th- I think we want to talk about gratitude. We'll be, we'll be on theme for with the rest of the world this week, but like Thanksgiving could be one of those like not really forgotten holidays, but it, you can look around in stores and see jack o' lanterns one day and Christmas trees the other. Um, it's kind of kind of like that at our house now. Those of you that that were there on last Wednesday, there was maybe like one Christmas decoration up now there's like three trees up four at the end of the day so uh, <laughs> so next time I, I believe it's on the 30th when our the the group will be at at our home again follow la 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 so <laughs> so um gratitude is, is something that that the world concentrates on during this time of year and I, I kind of see it like how the world sees Easter. Someone asked me one day, like the Monday after Easter one time, like, did your church do anything special on Easter? And I was like, not really. Jesus is alive every Sunday. So it's, n- <laughs> it's like nothing really more. Like, of course, we'll probably do something a little, little more, more special. But that's pretty much what we're celebrating every Sunday is that, that he's alive. And that, that, is, that is why we're here. That's why we're, we're living and breathing. So the same thing with, with Thanksgiving, because we don't want to just say thank you on the last week of November. We want to be a, a people that, that cultivates that within our hearts, within our culture, and in our community. And I, I just want to talk about the scientific portion of gratitude right now. I'm not a scientist, nor a neurologist, or a psychiatrist, or any of that. I learned all of this from the Google machine. So, the science of gratitude. What, when you're more, uh, when you're more gracious person, when, when you thank people more, you perceive more of the good you see. So, if if your eyes are like windows, it kind of like opens any blinders, blinders wider or any shutters. It, it, it opens it a little wider so we can see more of of the good around us because. We can realize that that we're not in the place we are currently at if it wasn't for the help of other people that that got us there. Uh, there is a a 12-week study at some place in the world where every day people wrote down three things that they were thankful for, and this went on on for 12 weeks. So I can I can imagine on the first day writing something down that went well and why it went well that that might be hard to think of Um, it's because your brain is not trained to do that but as as weeks 10 11 and 12 went on this became easier for people because they're not reaching far back and like just trying to fling something that like oh I'm glad I can breathe the air today which that is is a good baseline any baseline that like like I'm here breathing and living, that's something that that we should always be thankful for. Even, and even as Christians, the baseline is huge of what we should be thankful to God for 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 life, for eternal life, for 
for being his, his child. So even weeks after the study, the people that, that performed this task, they had a better well-being than, than other people that, that didn't do that. So that is just a, a scientific study that happened because um, related to this, people are more, more inclined to notice the headwinds, which is like resistance coming against them, other than the tailwinds, which are things that help propel them to, to better things. And you, you can probably get an example of this by, like, if, if you have a bad situation somewhere, you're going to go to Yelp or Google Reviews because there's, there's something bad that happened, and you want the world to know how terrible the service was. Or if, if you got so if you went someplace with exceptional service, that that'll that'll give you uh, good feelings, but usually it, it won't propel you to go and write something down unless it's like above and beyond what what you thought. But having that ha having the tables turned on on those emotions on those things that affect us is is something that people that practice gratitude can, can turn around. And going more scientific is when you're more thankful, there are things that, that chemicals in your brain, dopamine and serotonin, which, which make you feel good. Those fire off shoo, things in your brain. Yeah, that's, that's the technical thing. Shoo. They, they, they fire off things in your brain. So you couldn't think of anything else to say. Yeah, neurons, things, electrical charges that are good, that, that, that hit the medial prefrontal cortex, which I think is in the back of your brain, which, which is the part that is linked to learning and making decisions. So when you're thankful and when you do things like that, the dopamine and serotonin fire off. They, they can actually reroute your brain signals and, and, and brain routes so that when you like initially begin that behavior of, of being grateful, it, it makes that link there, but then the more often you do it, the easier it becomes to, to alter that part of your brain that, that makes, deci makes decisions. So if something negative comes towards you, it's going to be easier for your, for your brain because it's been exercised to, to be thankful and to not look at the darkest situation. It's, it's going to have more more time and more more notice to to have something there that that's that's going to have a good outcome for you. So we want to look at a story that that at first glance it's it's like okay, we should be thankful, but I think we're going to dive into it more and see that there there's more to learn in this story than just on the surface. So it's in Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 11. It's about the ten lepers. Okay. Now it happened as he, meaning Jesus, went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. 
So when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Awesome. So go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Luke 17 if you have them with you, um, because we're going to do a, a deeper dive into the text. Um, one of the things that I've said to some of you before um, is that something that I care very, or carry very deep and close to my heart is that I believe that God is all-powerful, so God could have brought Jesus to reveal God's mercy and salvation to us at any place, <laughs> any time, any region, any socio-historical context in history. And so I think there's a reason that he chose to bring Jesus to this earth in the era that he did and to speak the language that he did and to have the gospels written in the language that they were and also to have the gospels and the events of Jesus's life take place in the historical context that they did for a purpose. And so it really matters to me, and I am so grateful to God, that he gives us skills and wisdom to interpret his text in light of the historical context that he was in and that Jesus walked in um, to better understand what God was wanting to communicate to us. So we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive into the text and some of the things that I found interesting about the historical context and the language. Um, so the story begins by identifying that Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. So essentially he is walking the road to his crucifixion. It's going to be the last journey he takes before his death. And the text also says that he stopped at a village on the border between Samaria and Galilee. Um, it doesn't name the village. And so for those of you who might need to brush up on their <laughs> biblical geography, I know I needed to as well. I had to look this up on the Google machine. Um, the border of Samaria to Galilee is anywhere between like 83 or 93 miles to Jerusalem. So Jesus wasn't at the end of his journey by any means, but his journey to Jerusalem in the Gospel of Luke began in chapter 9. This is chapter 17, and he's, I think he arrives in Jerusalem around chapter 20. So at least narratively speaking, this occurs toward the end of his journey to Jerusalem. Now, one of the things <laughs> that I want to share with you in a moment of confession and calling myself to account is that I realized as I studied this text with Jared <laughs> and as I did my own deeper dive in preparation for today, I realized that I had always read this story with a sort of subconscious lens. Um, and that is to say that every other time I heard this story, I read it as sort of a villains and hero narrative where the Samaritan was clearly the hero because he returned to show gratitude to God. And then the other nine lepers who the scriptures um, or the scholars say are most likely Jews from Galilee, that they were villains, awful, wretched, no good people who missed the mark. And surely I would never do that, right? Surely I would be like the Samaritan 
who came back and showed gratitude. <laughs> but here's the deal. As I was reading the text more closely, I had to come to grips with who those other nine men were um, and how close they were to the mark, <laughs> so close that I could have easily been one of them. So this is first exemplified in the beginning of the verse. Hold on, I'm going to. It says, and they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, the first interesting thing I noticed is that word master. Um, in Greek, the word is not particularly remarkable. It's translated perfectly well as master. What is remarkable is that this Greek word for master is only used seven other times in the Gospels. They're all in Luke. And in all seven times, it's a word that's used by the disciples to address Jesus. That's the only other time it's used. So that tells me something about these lepers and how they saw Jesus from the start. All ten of them, <laughs> not just the Samaritan. That all of them immediately acknowledged Jesus as their master, as someone they put their faith in, as someone they can trust. And <laughs> even more than that, someone that they trusted to address as their master because they knew that he could heal them. That sounds less like a villain narrative to me already, right? That was my first uh-oh. <laughs> Um, another thing I found interesting is that it says they called out to him in a loud voice. In Greek, the words that are used here that are translated as a loud voice, actually it, the closer definition is they made a loud sound. One of the things that I learned about leprosy is that it also affects your vocal cords. And so people with leprosy awesome, uh, often had chronic hoarseness or even lost their voices entirely. So you can imagine that the noise they had to make, they probably had to come together and lift their voices as loud as they possibly could in light of the disease that they had. And they had to be at a distance because of the Levitical purity laws that were against them. Let's take a little sidebar. <laughs> I'm going to talk about the Levitical purity laws. Who's excited about that? Yeah. <laughs> Because that's, again, going back to understanding and appreciating the scripture we read in the context that it was written. Understanding the Levitical purity laws, especially the impact they had on these lepers, would have been a totally understand, understood um, aspect of the scriptures. And the first hearers of the gospel would have these Levitical purity laws in the back of their mind. And I don't know about you, but I don't on any given day have Levitical purity laws in the back of my mind. So I had to review. <laughs> so Leviticus chapter 13 and 14 specifically outline the process for evaluating and ostracizing and hopefully re-inviting people who suffer from leprosy and other skin diseases back into society. Um, so in Leviticus 13, it outlines basically if someone presents with the symptoms of a skin disease or leprosy, they have to go through a 21-day isolation and evaluation process where basically every seven days a priest will come and evaluate whether the disease has resolved or spread. And if on the 21st day they still have symptoms of the disease like leprosy, then they are ostracized from society. In the Bible, it says ostracized from the camp. When they are told to leave the camp, 
according to the Levitical purity laws, they need to clothe themselves in torn garments, which is meant essentially so that if people saw them from afar, they would know that those people had leprosy and were contagious. They were told to cover their faces from the bottom of their faces with cloth because leprosy was spread by droplets. That feels a little too familiar to all of us, I'm sure, right now. And they were also told that everywhere they went, they needed to yell unclean anytime someone was nearby to signal that they were suffering from a contagious disease so other people wouldn't get it. And I know, I mean, when I read it from my 21st century mindset, that sounded cruel, right? And, now, and upon reflection, I also have a little bit of sympathy for the earliest Israelites because that was a really effective way to pre prevent disease spread. But you could only imagine what these 10 lepers had gone through. Even thinking about those 21 days that they were under evaluation, the anxiety they must have felt going through that process, knowing how much there was to lose. And indeed, they did lose it all. Now, the other thing about the Levitical law is in chapter 14, it states that if someone ends up healing, <laughs> they lose any of the signs or symptoms of disease. To be welcomed back into society, they had to go through another essential eight-day um, evaluation and um, isolation process during which there are things like rituals that were done and evaluation by a priest and prayer and so it was an eight-day long process and at, at, at the end of those days their illness was still gone then they were reinvited back into society so how's that for Levitical purity laws now y'all know them <laughs> so let's go back to the text it says when Jesus saw the lepers and in Greek, that word saw here is not just like physically see. The word in Greek means something like saw straight into their souls. So it says that Jesus saw into them. It says when he saw them, Jesus said, go show yourself to the priests. So we all know why Jesus said that now, right? Because that was the process of being, of being formally pronounced cleansed. And what did they do? <laughs> they followed instructions. All ten of them, not just the Samaritan, they literally did what they were told to do. And I also think it's interesting that the text later on says that along the way they were cleansed. So those other nine still went to show themselves to the priest before they had any physical proof of their healing. These do not sound like villains anymore. <laughs> so now the one who turned around is identified as a Samaritan. He's the one at the end of the story turns around and comes to Jesus with gratitude. Something that's interesting to me about Samaritans was that they were very different from Jews, and one of the reasons was because they shared, the Samaritans had their own Bible that was actually very similar to the Jewish Bible that we know, the Old Testament. One of the crucial differences is that the Samaritans thought that they were the chosen people of God, so as I'm sure you can imagine, that led to some contentious <laughs> relationships with the Jewish people. But, what I find so interesting is that one of the parts of the Samaritan Bible that was similar were the Levitical purity laws. So the Samaritan turning around isn't because the law didn't apply to him. The Samaritan had the same laws, had the same, had the same duties he had to go through to be welcomed back into society. So something different compels him to turn around. 
And this is where I, again, have empathy for those nine because technically they were following the rules. Technically they were doing exactly what Jesus told them to. And technically they had so much to lose if they turned around. So, and I also like to think, I don't know, this is pure speculation, but I also like to think, well, maybe they would have turned around. Maybe they would have gone back and seen their priests and gone through the eight-day process and had been reinvited into society after being officially recognized as healed. <laughs> but what we know from, from where Jesus was on his journey is if that they were waiting and they had waited, Jesus may not have been alive when they came to find him. That hits close to my heart. So let's look at the Samaritan. The scripture is clear that along the way he was healed. And here in Greek, this word for healing is something like a healing that points only to God. So it's more than just cleanse. It's healed in a way that shows that God's presence and power is at work. The next part I find so poignant is it says that the Samaritan came back praising God in a loud voice. Remember what I shared about leprosy and what it did to your voice? So probably for the first time in days, months, weeks, years, the Samaritan has his voice back. And the first thing he does is he turns around and uses it to praise God. That's powerful, right? So finally, Jesus asks, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? So then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. So, so far in terms of the words we've heard for cure, we've heard cleanse, we've heard healed, and now Jesus says your faith has made you well. In Greek, the word for well, it means something like rescued, saved, or made whole. So I have empathy for what the other nine went through. But in this story, we see that though all ten of them were cleansed, all ten of them were healed, when the Samaritan was brave enough to return with gratitude in spite of everything his culture and religious rituals told him to do, the Samaritan was cleansed, he was healed, and he was made whole. So in his gratitude, his blessings were multiplied. I like how when the Samaritan came back, he came back in thanks with a loud voice. So as, as we heard, lepers had chronic hoarseness or not even a voice at all, so... So having, ha having that gratitude expressed in something with something that he had lost is significant, just as in Acts 3 with the, the lame man at the gate, beautiful, and when it's spoken to him, rise up and walk, the man that was lame for many years, he went walking and leaping and praising God. So him also demonstrating his thanks with something that was, was taken from him, and also just us, as we have been, giving li been given life through the resurrection of Jesus, as, as we've been giving the life we have here and the life to come, that we present ourselves as living sacrifices. So, so every day we want to live our lives in, 
in moments of, of gratitude every day. In Philippians 4, verse 6, it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So, going back to the beginning of that, be anxious for nothing. That's easier said than done. Like, if you, if you bring me in a plane and say, hey, we're going to skydive. I don't know if anyone sky, skydived before, but that's probably going to raise a level of anxiety a lot in, in most people. But going from an extreme example to, to just, like, everyday things, there's, there's many things to be anxious about and, and, and worry about, but it's, it's, it's right there. It says, be anxious for nothing. But when we look at the, the next part, it says, in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. But it, it doesn't, the, the sentence doesn't go, in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. There are two words in there. It says, with thanksgiving. So, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So it's, it's not just coming to God with our requests and our prayers. It's coming to God even though there's a lack, a deficit in our life. There is also always something to, to, to bring to God to be, to be thankful for. Uh, because just reading the rest of the verse, and the, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, that, that itself should eliminate any anxiety and, and it should help that first, first sentence be anxious, first phrase, be anxious for nothing. Because we have a God who can give us peace which surpasses our finite minds. Because we, we're, we're human, we have crazy imaginations, we can think of scenarios that, that haven't even happened as we're thinking about a problem, we can think of the worst things that can happen. We, we can think of all types of scenarios and directions it can go. But as we come to God with prayer and supplication, always remember that thanksgiving within us. Uh, just as the psalmist said in Psalm 94, 19, in the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. So having anxieties is not... It's not abnormal, but it's, but it's also normal, and we want it to be normal for, for the believers that God's comfort delights our soul, that, that whatever's in front of us, just like I believe it was last week, um, just not going, always just going to God with our problems, but speaking to our problems, the mountains uh, in front of us, but that God is always with us and that his comforting words, his comforting ways will delight our souls, and that is something to always be thankful for. So along those lines, I want to draw our attention to another verse, Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. I'll give you a second to find it. What? First Thessalonians. Yeah, thank you. So First Thessalonians 5, 18 says, Be thankful in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Now, I wanted to highlight this verse to address something that some of us might be thinking right now, and maybe you aren't, 
But mostly I wanted to address it because it speaks to something that I have thought <laughs> in my life, so another moment of accountability. And that is that sort of sense of like, okay, sounds super easy to be grateful to God when the miracle healing occurs, right? That's, the Samaritan did a great job showing his gratitude, but also he got the thing that he prayed for. What about when you don't get the thing that you pray for? What about when you're in a time of trial and grief and you just can't quite see to the other side and things don't feel resolved? It's not so easy to feel grateful to God then. You guys might have that all figured out, but I know I have felt that in my life. And I think part of it, too, is I've seen in our culture at times how our culture tends to address the relationship between suffering and gratitude and that our culture tends to address it as an either or rather than a both and. Um, I see it in movies a lot, <laughs> that the dramatic arc of most movies, especially Disney movies, I suppose, is that things are happy, then there's a struggle, then there's a resolution, and then there's the castle with the fireworks at the end. And that's where all the gratitude happens, right? That when you're in the time of the struggle, it's when the sad orchestra music is happening. When you're at the end, when everything's resolved, that's when John Williams writes some really great stuff. He writes great stuff all the time. But that's how we tend to tell stories. <laughs> and so that makes it hard already to talk about the relationship between suffering and gratitude. And most of you know that I'm a hospital chaplain. I've been a chaplain for my whole career in hospice and hospitals. And that's something I see a lot in my role um, because very well-meaning people, including myself, sometimes have, have done this in a way that perpetuates the either-or relationship between suffering and gratitude. Something that I'll hear people say a lot, or if you see someone in a time of trial, I'll hear people say to them something like, don't worry, this will be over soon or something I hear my patients hear all the time from very loving people is, don't worry, this too shall pass. And that's not an unloving thing to say. Like, I understand that when someone tells someone, this too shall pass, it's coming from a very loving place inside of them because no one likes to see someone they love suffering. But something I've also seen as a hospital chaplain and a hospice chaplain is that a lot of the times, it doesn't pass. This too that they're talking about, a lot of the times it doesn't pass. So what does that mean about the this too? <laughs> does it mean if it doesn't pass, we don't get to be close to God, that we don't get to feel okay, that we don't get to feel joy, <laughs> that we don't get to feel gratitude until that thing passes and it doesn't always pass? What does that mean? And again, so much accountability today. I recognize that in my own life because of ways I've handled suffering and gratitude. Um, one of the clearest ways I've experienced this, uh, when I was in seminary, I was going through a difficult time. I had gone through some really hard things. And the image that God gave me um, that I shared with my friends at the time and my pastor at the time was that I felt like a broken hourglass. I felt like an hourglass that had fallen off the table and had broken into hundreds of little pieces. And I knew I was going to be okay, but I also, the image captured for me that even if you put all the pieces back together in their place, I would never be fully the same 
again. And so fast forward probably months, might have even been a year after the thing that I was going through happened, and I was in that sort of stalemate stage of grief where I was still struggling with God, with myself, and just not feeling, not feeling like the resolution had come. But I was also so ready for it to be done. I was so ready for the fireworks and the castle to come and to just forget about that time in my life, even though I knew God still had things to teach me. So... I was shopping at Anthropology, which is a clothing store for some of you who don't know, <laughs> probably buying clothes during finals because I was avoiding studying. And I was walking through the store, and as I'm about to leave and check out, I look over by the checkout stand, and there is a shelf of hourglasses for sale. And I thought, oh my goodness, okay. And this was my real thought process. I, anyway, I looked at the hourglasses, and I said to myself and to God, <laughs> I am going to buy this hourglass as a symbol to you, God, that I am done <laughs> with my grief process. I am totally healed and ready. We can just pretend like this never happened and move along with my life. I know you still have more things to teach me, but I'm going to buy this as my symbolic gesture to you that everything is over. I don't know why I thought that way, <laughs> but I did. So anyway, I pick up the hourglass from the shelf. I walk to the checkout. And I put it on the checkout counter, and I am so excited about my symbolic gesture to God and so ready for the healing that was about to come. And just as I'm about to pay, the woman next to me, very nice, had her purse on the counter. And when she picked it up, she knocked over the hourglass where it shattered in hundreds of pieces in front of my eyes. <laughs> Those things don't just happen by accident, right? That was my, okay, God, duly noted moment. <laughs> but here's the thing. I learned something really, really important that day that I think Thessalonians really reinforces. I thought that I had to fast forward to the happy ending for God to be with me in my journey. I thought I had to fast forward to the part where I had the resolution to feel grateful. And you know what? I imagine the nine lepers felt that way too, the ones who didn't come back and show their gratitude to Jesus. I imagine that they felt like broken hourglasses in ways that I can't even imagine. And even when they saw their healing on their bodies in front of their eyes, I imagine that they were too anxious to go back until they had gone through the motions of their faith to truly celebrate and show their gratitude. The thing that God says to me and us and all the followers of Jesus is that you don't need to be fooled. Don't be swayed. God doesn't just meet you when you're a whole hourglass. God doesn't just meet you when you see your whole healing materialized. God says be grateful in all things because I am with you in all things. So remember earlier when I got all scientific and talked about the brain? Um, so when we're grateful, to recap, dopamine and serotonin fire off in our brain, hit the medial prefrontal cortex to train the brain to think more positively, deal with negative, negative effects easier. 
And similar, similarly, we, we can do that with, with God. In Psalm 100, verse 4, it says, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. So enter into his gates with thanksgiving. That's our ticket into the presence of God is to be thankful, to humble our hearts, to, to enter into his presence, the posture of our heart to be, to be humbled in the presence of, of a mighty king. So the more that we're thankful with Jesus, the easier it is, the easier it will become for us to enter into his presence and enter deeper into his presence to, to fire off new new routes, new, new ways, like a highway into his presence, just because it's easier for us to, to thank God for every little thing that, that he's done, every big thing that he's, he's done, everything that he's working on. So just us being grateful, having that ticket into his presence, that's something valuable because God wants, God wants to be with us. God wants us to be in his presence, and I want to be, to be a person, one, one of his children that long to be in his presence. Thank you. Well, let me go ahead and pray for us as we close our time here. Gracious and loving Father, we know that the things we can be grateful for to you are countless. And God, I know you see all of the hearts, the experiences, the wholeness of all of the souls gathered in this place. You know what we face. You know what we've overcome. And we know that in all things that the only thing that will follow us is your goodness and your mercy. God, I pray that you will give us hearts <laughs> that are eager to see gratitude and opportunities for gratitude in this world. And I know, Lord, that you will take that gratitude and multiply our blessings. Help us even today to see your spirit moving in ways that even surprise us, maybe a way we've never seen you before. And more than anything, Lord, I ask that you will bless us so that we feel you every moment of this day and that we would be a light that shines your presence to all those that we meet. So I bless this community, I bless our world, and I bless this place in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Champions Church. We invite you to join us this Sunday for our celebration worship service. For more information, please visit us at champschurch.com.